What's up, everybody? It's Intuition, and you're tuned in to Kinda Neat. Thank you guys for tuning in again. Let me get all the social media stuff out of the way first. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter at That's Kinda Neat. Follow my man, Ben Shim, behind the boards, making this shit sound all buttery, uh, at IM Database, based with two S's. You can follow me on Twitter at It's Intuition. And of course, uh, our YouTube channel is youtube.com slash That's Kinda Neat. Be sure to go check out the videos. And remember, you can see everything on kindaneat.net. And if you're not fucking with podcasts through a subscription service like Stitcher or iTunes, both of which you can subscribe to us on, if you're just sitting at your desk at a computer and you want to listen to it, you can stream the podcast there. You can see the videos there. So kindaneat.net. Now, I don't have a job. I'm at home a lot. I'm on a computer a lot. I like the internet. And so sometimes I will be searching around and clicking various links, particularly ones that have to do with uh, content and output that we're doing. And after the Kitty Pride video, I happened to see a post that somebody made that's a fan of Kitty Pride's. You should be a fan of Kitty Pride. She's great. She was really cool. And the video came out great. I'm really proud of how uh, that song came out. And I really, I think it's just a great song. But this guy who has his own blog was like, it's a very good interview with Kitty Pride, and you learn a lot about her, and she also dropped a great song, but you can fast forward to about the seven-minute mark in order to avoid a misogynistic story, a misogynistic and pointless story about the host going to Las Vegas. Now, I will agree with this guy. If you're just tuning in for the first time, or if you tune in always, you should know that the first five to 10 minutes of my podcast, of this podcast, of our podcast, is me bullshitting about my life. Now, the reason I do this is because I like to keep the actual interviews about the artist. Sometimes I chime in with personal opinion, but most of the time I'm more interested in getting to know them. So I use this time to bullshit about myself so that people that follow the podcast because they're interested in my life can and catch up with what I've been up to. So if you don't want to hear me bullshit about myself, yes, please feel free to fast forward until you hit a beat. When you hear the beat, that means that the interview is about to start. And I'm fine with that. It's no skin off my back. It doesn't chat my hide in the least. That's fine. I understand that if you're not familiar with my shit, I can come off like a douchebag. It is what it is. I understand that and I'm fine and secure with myself about that. Having said that, I figure if I'm getting mistaken for a misogynist, which I don't think I am, I do not hate women, I love women quite a bit, perhaps some of the things that I say could come off as sexist, and sure, I'll give you that. Perhaps I can be sexist sometimes. My apologies. But I figured why not go all out and give you a fucking crazy-ass story about that topic? A few episodes ago in the Bago podcast, I asked her, do you have a favorite musical memory or like a moment that stuck out to you as like the moment in your, in your, uh, budding career that was like a great memory. And, um, I just remembered one of mine. I was up in Santa Barbara last week for a job. We were shooting out on Isla Vista, out in Isla Vista on Del Playa. And if you guys are in Southern California, you know that like Del Playa and IV, those are like big party sections of Santa Barbara and people travel from all around California to go there and party for a weekend because it's fucking crazy, right? So the whole time that I'm there, everybody that's on the shoot, uh, we're all far beyond the college years and we're all kind of like, man, these fucking kids, they don't realize how good they have it. Look how happy they are living here in the campus lifestyle. They don't realize what the real world's going to be like in a couple years for them, you know? And that got me to thinking back when I was in college. And um, when I first moved to Santa Barbara, 
I had just put out this um, really bad demo tape. I put it in some stores to give to people for free. And that's uh, how Mark Equilibrium ended up finding out about me. Now, I had been going around Santa Barbara to all the various venues dropping off this demo trying to get a show because I wanted to like open for people or just play shows. I hadn't really been playing any. I don't think I'd ever played a show at all. And um, I met Mark. We made two songs together in two weeks. And then all of a sudden we get a phone call. I get a phone call on my house phone because I had left my phone number on the CD. Like, hey, if you hear this and you're interested, uh, you know, I would love to play a show. I would love to open for whomever. So I get a phone call. And now I'm thinking, oh, this is fate. Like I fucking meet this guy, Mark. And here I've been trying for like four months to get a show. And after I meet him for two weeks, we have the opportunity to throw a show. This is going to be fucking awesome, you know? So we start to gather up the other hip hop kids that we knew in the area. So it was like me and Mark. And at the time I was in this crew, I'm not going to say the name because if it's on the internet, I don't want any of the songs to ever surface because they're so bad. But it's me and Mark and then a group called the Mind Travelers and then um, a kid named Vix Freon. It's very rapidy, rapidy underground rap show. It was at a place called the Coach House that no longer exists. And, you know, the guy was like, yeah, do whatever you want, throw a show. And we charged, I think, seven bucks to get in the door or something like that. And uh, we went hard as fuck on the promotion. This was like before the internet. You couldn't really promote on the internet back then. Uh, it was like it, it was definitely MySpace days. But it, it, and so we did MySpace events and stuff. But it isn't a small ass town like Santa Barbara's not that big, and um, there definitely wasn't like a, a rap scene there at the time. So. We went hard with hand flyers. There's kiosks all over the place. And so we made hand flyers and we would go to every show and hand out hand flyers. We made 11 by 17s by going to a Kinko's and basically like I flirted with the girl behind the counter and she gave us about 211 by 17s, another 200 8 by 10s and a shitload of hand flyers for like $5 because we invited her to the show. We said, yeah, yeah, in a couple of weeks we have a show. You should come through. And she just gave us on the slide. You know, people that work at Kinko's, they don't give a fuck. They'll give you a discount if you're not to them because everybody is assholes to them so anyway we get a bunch of flyers for free and we're going all around to the kiosk we're going to iv stapling up the 11 by 17s on every light pole we would go to college parties and hand out the hand flyers we're putting we're doing shit like going to the borders books and any magazine that we were interested in like whether it be skateboard magazine a music magazine a snowboarding magazine uh fucking anything we would put a flyer in the middle of it so anybody who's like flipping through the magazine would see this hand flyer so we really had no idea as to how many people were going to show up until the day before the show. We're out on State Street in Santa Barbara handing out hand flyers. And I and there's this like little group of like maybe 16 or 17-year-old kids, like skate kids. And we just walk up to them and we're like, hey, what's up, guys? We're having like an all-ages show tomorrow night. And they go, oh, the hip-hop show at the Coach House? Like, yeah, man, we're already go – we're going to go there. Like all of our friends are coming too. It was like all of a sudden – all the footwork that we did had turned into a big deal because no one had thrown like a local hip hop show there in a long time, apparently. So the buzz was up. And, and at that moment we were like, Oh shit. Like I think people are going to show up. And so lo and behold, the next night, we get there early. The guy just kind of was like, oh, yeah, the guy who won the place. I have to run some errands. You know, the green room's back here. You know, you guys can start sound checking or whatever. But really what we did, we checked the kegs and like they were already tapped. And so we're like drinking beers. And then at the time I was like heavy into smoking weed still. So like my weed dealer came and we're all like smoking blunts up in the green room and drinking beers and getting fucked up. And then um, when it came time for the show – we sold out the show. Uh, about 350 kids showed up to this venue. 
none of us had ever played a show before. The Mind Travelers hadn't played a show. Vix Freon hadn't played a show. Intuition had never played a show. And yet we all had enough friends. I got enough friends from college and the Mind Travelers were local dudes. So they had enough friends and Vix had enough friends that 300 fucking kids showed up and it was awesome. And uh, it was fucking insane, dude. Like we got – way warmer of a reception than we should have. I didn't know anything about performing and my mic control is probably terrible and who knows if the sound was any good, but all of a sudden, like girls from my school that showed up who didn't usually give me the attention that I wanted were like giving me lots of attention, you know? And that was like kind of a turning point too uh, with the girl who ended up being my first love. She was at the show and she was like really wilding out in the front row, like hella feeling it because I had been pursuing her for a while. And I think that was kind of the moment where she was like, oh, maybe this guy has some potential, you know? So that show in turn helped me fall in love for the first time. But in the meantime, I was with one of my friends and after I got off stage, he was uh, like, I went on second to last. We let the mind travelers go on last because they had the most local following or whatever. And um, there was a strip club right down the street called the Spearmint Rhino that we could walk to. He's like, yo, man, fuck this. Let's get out of here. We're going to go to the strip club. I said, well, all right, let's do that. And um, we took a group of probably 20 people to the strip club. Like we left the venue with 20 people. It was like the Pied Piper. We get to the strip club and it's empty inside. And when our party got in there, it was fucking jam packed and turned into a raging party. Now to preface this, there was a girl that I went to college with who was like a little bit older. I don't know. I feel like she was probably 27 or 28 at the time. And I was like maybe 21. I probably just turned 21. And, um, she never gave anybody at our school the time of day. She had this little pixie haircut. She had freckles and like blonde hair, green eyes, just a knockout. She was fucking gorgeous. But like she wouldn't talk to anybody. And it turns out it's because she was older and she was like really about her business and trying to like succeed in life. And like that's why she was there. And so she was from Vegas, it turns out. And um, I also met a girl while I was there at the show who was like a, a young Mexican girl. She was like maybe 19. It turns out that she was the sister of one of the dudes uh, in one of the other groups, I think. And so she's like, yeah, you know, I love your shit because it sounds like spoken word and I really liked it and yada, yada. And I said, oh, cool. Well, hey, we're going to the strip club. Do you want to go? Very intellectual thing to say. So she's like, yeah, I want to come. And so she's like kind of, I don't, she probably had never been to a strip club. She was trying to act a little more badass than she really was, whatever, whatever. We get to the strip club. We're all sitting at the stage. I've got the blonde to the left of me and the brunette to the right. And the blonde had brought one of her friends along too who was um, – had a live-in boyfriend, may or may not have been married. I can't remember. But it turns out that they were into like some crazy shit together. Like they like to kind of um, fool around with each other on the side it turns out. And so at one point, the blonde leans over to me and goes, hey, uh, I don't know if you know that I'm from Vegas, but I used to – on the weekends go in and do amateur competitions in Vegas and that's how I would like – you know, pay my rent and shit, I would make like, you know, 500 bucks in a night winning these amateur competitions or whatever. And I'm like, oh, for real? And she goes, yeah, actually, I have a surprise for you. And she runs off and then comes back, grabs my hand and her other girlfriend's hand and says, look, I just paid the bouncer 40 bucks. He's going to let us use this back room. And I said, well, shit, okay. And we go back there. She sits uh, her friend and I down on a, a couch next to each other. And she says, close your eyes. 
And I said, all right. So I like kind of did the whole close one eye, half open the other one. And I'm watching her fucking get butt ass naked and she gets butt ass naked and ends up giving me a lap dance. And as she's giving me a lap dance, she's also like, you know, making out with her friend next to her and kind of like disrobing her friend a little bit and putting my hands on her friend, which was kind of like weird at first, but then her friend got into it and it was crazy. She's bare ass. We're all making out at this point in the back of this strip club. And, uh, a bouncer comes in and goes, hey, what the fuck are you guys doing? And I go, no, nah, no, nah, man, it's cool. She fucking tipped somebody off. And she goes, well, she didn't fucking tip me off. Get out of here. So we had to like go back. She runs out with like her clothes covering her chest and her uh, and her lower parts and runs back to the bathroom to get dressed. And uh, I kind of ramble out with like a drunken smirk on my face and sit back down at the stage. And the brunette that was next to me goes, oh, she gave you like a lap dance or something. She goes, I bet I could do better. And I said, well, we'll just see about that, won't we? So we end up all leaving the strip club at some point, and um, the brunette decides to hop in the car with me. I wasn't actually drunk. I stayed sober. I just meant drunk and smirk as in I was very, I was very um, uh, happy. And so we drove home. She ended up coming back to my little cottage with me and stayed the night. Now, this girl was a prude. She uh, didn't take her jeans off the whole night. I did get her shirt off. She looked amazing topless. This is also sexist. I'm very sorry. But basically, like, nothing happened with that girl. So that sucked. Whatever. But the point is, the next day we're regrouping and I meet up with the dudes and the Mind Traveler Fools gave me a bunch of money because we made a shitload at the door. And so I'm this 21-year-old kid with, like, you know, a bunch of money in my pocket and had two girls, like, going ape shit over me. That is the moment that I realized I think I want to be a rapper forever. And so... You know, when somebody says, what's your favorite story or your favorite memory, that's probably it. That that was, uh, I've been chasing that high ever since. And so that is probably why I still continue to do what I do because it was one of the most fun nights of my life and a really great experience. And I've always loved being on stage and uh, that kind of solidified it for me. So that being said, I want to apologize if that seemed misogynist or if it seems sexist. But it's just a true story. It's just how it happened. I respect both of those girls. I actually, the blonde one, I always try to find her on Facebook. I can't remember her goddamn last name, though, because she was amazing looking. Um, and yeah, with that being said, today's guest is uh, Sean Coplo. Sean is the one of the co-owners of Anticon Records. He's got a really cool story about working his way up from the ground floor. He started off as an intern up in the Bay and just kind of, um, you know, kept at it, kept at it. And now he runs a really fucking hip and cool label. And so we had a great conversation and I found it very interesting. So without further ado, let's get right into the conversation with Sean Coplo. What have you been up to, Sean? Um, Who do you work for? What do you do? I, I run a record label called Anticon. We are about to, uh, and, well, we're getting close to 15 years in, in the game. And I've been involved for, um, I don't know, 12 years or something? Really? 2001. End of, two, uh, end of this year, 12 years. So you were there at the beginning. Not really. Pretty close to it. I was a big fan in high school. Yeah. And then I started interning as a college freshman. Where were you at in high school? Hamilton High School. You went to Hamilton too? Yeah. Dude, every fucking Everyone buddy. went to Hamilton. Everyone I know, I mean, not everyone I know, but a lot of people in LA right now, uh, you know, in my circle of music friends, yeah. um, 
the musicians all went to the music academy, and the people in the industry all went to the humanities magnet. I didn't even know you were from L.A. I thought you were yeah. like a Midwesterner. You have a Minnesota nah, look to you. I don't even know what that means. I don't know either. You just, yeah. I don't have a tan. You're very, very pale. <laughs> uh, so wait, what part of L.A.? Are you from the west side? Uh, no, I, I mainly grew up in the valley, and then... My when my parents split up, my uh, my dad moved to West LA, mm. and I moved in with him at the beginning of high school. What part of West LA? Right near Hamilton. It was Culver City area called Beverlywood. Oh yeah, Beverlywood, uh, Castle Heights. Oh yeah, yeah. I just passed Castle Heights. Yeah, I started in the Valley and then moved to West LA uh, last year of high school. My dad moved back to the Valley. So your folks split up when you were how old? Nine years old, but took my dad a couple years to get out to the West side. And then, uh, when my dad moved back to the Valley right before my senior year of high school, I started going to this place called the basement a lot. Oh yeah. Basement 818. Well, they used to just be called the basement. It's under different ownership now. I didn't even know they existed until I randomly saw something online the other day, but it used to be run by this guy, Rob, who used to go by Rock. Oh, yeah, Rock. And uh, it's funny. He kind of became like a little mentor to me for a little while. Oh, no shit. So you, you used to watch like No Can Battle and shit back in the day then, huh? Pre-No Can. Oh, pre-No Can. Yeah. Even. All right. Yeah, it was like rhetoric and oh, a yeah. bunch of other dudes. Um, and my senior year, I was trying to make like a little documentary on what real hip-hop was. Yeah. And uh, so I would film a lot of the battles, and I would interview a lot of people um, that would come through the basement or at shows, and I was just always somewhere with a camera. And um, anyway, I I formed a friendship with Rob Rock at the time, and he always said he wanted to hire me, but he always had these super cute girls that would work for free. And I would also get in fights with, not fights, but arguments, you know, um, opinionated hip-hop conversations with people at the shop that probably would not have been ideal for an employee there to have but um a lot of them what kind of hip-hop nerdery were you discussing i was just really into like you know like experimental shit and stuff that was maybe rejected by the status quo of backpacker even though were you very like anti-mainstream i was were you like the fuck the lame stream well no i was just like you know I don't know. I, I, I don't even want to like admit to you know how ridiculous I was, but I, I was obviously a pretty big Anticon fan at the time, and mm. he ended up introducing me to the guys when they came through town. Mm. Like the first uh, Thanksgiving that I you know I, I went to Berkeley, and my first Thanksgiving I came down to L.A. and he calls me up and he's just like, "Come through the shop. Come through the shop." And I'm, you know, like, why? And he's just like, come through. I come through and, uh, and it, he's like, why? It was, no, no, <laughs> Yoni wasn't there. But, uh, but there were like four of them. I'm pretty sure it was, you know, No Stom and Soul and Alias. And I basically just said, hey, you know, I go to UC Berkeley. I know you guys are based out of the Bay. I would love to intern for you. And they basically got rid of their other intern uh-huh. who they used to kind of punk around a little bit. They all kind of lived in Berkeley or eventually Oakland, ended up in Oakland. At that point, they had all um, moved either from New England or the Midwest, mainly Cincinnati, mm. to to live in Oakland and Berkeley and to start a label. They had a house in Emeryville uh, that they rented out for an office, and it was really ridiculous. And there's this guy, Bailey, who ran the label, who's still a co-owner with us. And, uh, 
you know, Bomar, who went by the Bomar monk from Rest of Foreign Bodies, was like the secretary, and Alias was the accountant, and Adnostan was the art director, and they had a little distribution um, company that they were running at the time, and I would just come in and like help fill orders and do dumb shit and. Yeah. So before that, like, what were you like in high school? And explain what the humanities magnet is. Like, what does that concentrate on? The humanities magnet at Hamilton is it's about ten percent of the school, three thousand person school. There's three hundred kids in the humanities magnet. It's liberal arts. Um, you study like art history and you know pretty standard liberal arts stuff. Um, it's you know smaller class size, I believe, and you know a lot more uh, honors or AP classes than uh, the rest of the school, which provides like some weird segregation from the rest of the school, except you guys end up sharing, you know, PE classes or language classes or, you know. What were you like in high school? Were you already a rap nerd? I was, you know, I don't know. Well, moving from the Valley, I didn't really have any friends um, that I came to school with in high school. So I had to make all my own friends from scratch. And the kids that I ended up becoming most close with later on kind of shunned me at first and I just hung out with like all black kids like by the cafeteria my freshman year and you know was very into rap music and Mm -hmm. And what kind of rap were you listening to back at that time just like you know more commercial shit you know just I don't know I think I was pretty into like Wyclef you know like whatever was like cool Have, have have you heard the new Chance the Rapper tape I have he's like the new Wyclef or something with more bars it's funny like I I kind of like it. I think I need to give it a few more listens. Sometimes his voice is a little grating to me, but I'm also highly opinionated. You'll learn through this conversation. I haven't had any issues with his voice, but I've read that. I don't know. For some reason, that tape is like clicking with me right now. I really like it. It's not his voice when he's rapping normally. It's when he does these, you know, sing songs. He's like, you know, when he puts emphasis and weird inflections and stuff. I feel you. It's just like. Don't do that. So you're into Wyclef? <laughs> yeah, I was not a huge Wyclef fan. I don't know why that came into my mind. <laughs> I just remember like playing video games and listening to the carnival uh, like as I was entering ninth grade yeah, or something like okay, that. Okay, okay. So it's not like I was a huge fan. So you could say... You know, I was a big Busta Rhymes fan. And, yeah. You know, I liked fast rap. I, you know, in elementary and middle school, I was really into Death Row Records and I was Hell yeah. very, you know, what pro West Coast gangster rap yeah doggy style changed my life yeah that that was like a tape i had to hide from my father my mom stole that cd from me because i got detention for cursing a couple times that's awesome i remember uh driving around and my mom was driving and i was in the passenger seat and listening to you know warren g's tape and her like me not understanding it. You and know, your the, mom the, dropping it like it's hot. There was the uh, 94 Ho draft skit on it that <laughs> oh, I had yeah. no clue what that meant. <laughs> and she was just like, I don't think this is appropriate. But I think she kind of... Is that the one where he's like, the bitch got halitosis. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like, oh, Stacy, the jaw-jacking bitch from the west side. <laughs> and I'm just like, I had no clue what that meant. So I think she eventually let me get away with it because I was clueless. Yeah. So it couldn't have really affected me that much. You right, know? right. Um... Yeah. So. And look at you now. Your life is just eaten alive by rap music. I love rap music. Bryant Low Limit and I, um, you know, we have a rap monthly at the Crosby. We play, you know, fairly commercial. I mean, you know, we mix it up. We throw in Danny Brown and whatnot. But yeah, we play, we play Drake, you know. Love the Drake. So were you like a straight A student at Hamilton? No. How'd you get into Berkeley? 
I don't know. Um, you know, actually, I only applied to like four UCs, and Berkeley was the only one that contacted me and told me that I had submitted two of the same pages of my essay. Ah. So that was the only school that I know my application essay actually counted for. Um, I think because I had taken, you know, I probably had a good GPA based on weighted scores or something from, you know, AP classes or whatever. But, you know, I was I was always kind of like a B student, you know, from A's to like C pluses. Yeah, I feel You know, and in college as well. Out. What was your time in Berkeley like? I really enjoyed it. You know, I'm I'm rather nostalgic about those days. And it's funny because when you're a kid, you just always want to grow up get a job and you know and then it's you know when when my time at berkeley was wrapping up i was just like holding on <laughs> yeah i i was just on a job in um santa barbara this week it was just where i went to college at and while we were in the area there's all these college kids walking around an iv and, and we're shooting there and everyone on the fucking crew was just going these fucking kids don't realize how awesome their life is right yeah. now and how much they're gonna miss that shit in a couple of years like yeah you don't really realize how awesome college is until you leave well i mean there's pros and cons i mean Absolutely. you're always fucking broke oh you know? yeah, yeah you're always reliant on your parents to some degree not that i was like particularly broke i i probably was most broke because i burnt all my money at amoeba having that shit like two blocks from the campus mm. three blocks or whatever and um yeah no my time at berkeley was good i i, I originally started there as a legal studies student thinking i was going to go to law school basically the kind of stuff your parents just pump into you and uh i really hated all my classes uh, i'm glad i took some of them just to have different experience but i ended up uh taking art classes for fun and finding that the faculty really liked me and I ended up having that be my major. And also I always saw that I would probably have a job at Anticon when I was done. So I kind of just decided to do what I wanted to do and I ended up painting and I had a, the faculty nominated me and, you know, I was selected for an honor studio for two semesters, which is the most they'll give it to you for. And yeah, I really, I really enjoyed that. I, you know, I curated some shows after school. I don't paint anymore. I don't find myself having the free time. And what did you used to paint? I don't know. Uh, you know, I was, I guess, I was really into like stuff coming out of the SF Mission School, like Barry McGee stuff. But my stuff was, you know, my teachers would compare it to that. But it was never. Um, as I was like, hoping you would just say like horses. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Have you, seen, have you seen George Bush's George like W. To, Bush's like paintings, paint by the way? I think I saw him. <laughs> oh I think so on uh, the Daily Show or something. Yeah, he's like painting like dogs and stuff like that. But but um, no, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I was I was definitely influenced by that stuff, but I was never um, I was never really a graffiti kid. If I you know the couple of times I tried, I felt like such a toy and so bad at it that I just I was I was really shy. You know, I, I was I could never really. I could never really paint really well, like in front of people. So having that honor studio was really nice. But um, but again, that's you know similar to the idea of like if you're gonna go out on the streets and paint, like everyone's gonna see it. I just I never really felt comfortable with that idea, or getting caught. And you know I've I've always been pretty um, not in trouble with the law. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You're a law-abiding citizen. I don't know if I'm law-abiding, but I'm. <laughs> 
I'm definitely careful about yeah, like you're you sneaky know. enough about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm pre- I'm pretty law abiding, fairly, fairly enough. So you were already in Berkeley going to school when when uh, Rocky introduced you to the guys from Anticon? Uh, you know, just for like maybe two months or something. You had just gotten there. Yeah. So you were home visiting. Yeah. In L.A. And then and then when you met him, you're like, oh hey, I fucking live in Berkeley, and you guys live in Berkeley. Like, yeah. what's good? And then basically. Um, the next time I came to LA was, you know, winter, winter break and cloud dead was playing at the knitting factory. They had two shows in a row with this group called hood, who was one of my favorite groups out of Leeds. Um, we've actually worked with one of the members on his solo music under the name Bracken. Um, and so I just showed up to the show and I kind of like worked their merch. They did two shows in a row. One was, uh, opened by Dentel. And one was opened by Langis, which is uh, Ale from Dub Labs group. And, you sound like Matt Pinfield right now, like dropping so many random names and stuff. Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a music nerd, man. Like, uh, so wait, this was what year? This is end of 2001. Okay. And uh, I guess because Cloud Dead was on Mush, the guy, Robert, who uh, runs Mush, owns Mush, um, he saw me do that. And then he basically asked me to go on tour with cloud dead and reaching quiet which is pre y uh well pre y as a band the first time yoni you know started playing with a band mm-hmm. uh dose one boom bip radio inactive and lab tech one so you're gonna manage that no tour. i just did like merch i was like the merch kid like okay. you know um i was that's a lot of people to go on tour together I, I, <laughs> yeah. that's a big line that's like a fucking festival yeah lineup. i was 18 years old you know and i went on tour with these guys and it was my first like real experience of traveling around the country. How Uh, was it? It was fun. I mean, I was definitely a scrub. I remember one of the first nights on the tour in Houston. I think, I don't know. I mean, to keep a long story short, I'm pretty sure I got like almost like roofied or something. (laughs) And I ended up puking all over the place and it made me look like this total fucking scrub. And I, (laughs) I got, I kind of got punked, but otherwise it was fun. And it was actually, you know, the, formation of a lot of relationships with, you know, like Yoni and Adnosam and Dos One that I think, you know, eventually lent, led to solid friendships that led to, you know, a, a work trust over the years. Um, it also led to Mush offering to hire me long distance, which allowed me to apply leverage to get paid by Anticon finally. So, I mean, although I did intern like through the rest of my college career, I was paid. I was basically a part-time employee Mm -hmm. with over the years, taking on more and more responsibility being, you know, I worked probably 20 hours a week, you know, for them by then of my college career while I was doing art, while I was working at the library, while I was, you know, DJing, I was starting to DJ at that point. I had a radio show as a freshman in college. I got kicked out. So you have a strong work ethic. I try to. I think one of my greatest faults is that sometimes I, I take on a little bit too much, you know, and I'm a bit optimistic about how much um, workflow I can process. Does that ever cause problems with actual finishing stuff? Yeah, I mean, always. I mean, I think that's a, you know, a natural human fault that we're probably all gu- – or hopefully we're all guilty of. Um, you know, there are always things that end up getting put on the back burner that you – wish you could accomplish that maybe you haven't and maybe one day you will but you know i think um there's a lot you know i remember like trying to start a compilation a few years ago that just never went anywhere and it was you know there was a there was an idea that got shelved at anticon um where uh, this is gonna be some major nerd shit but there's 
Have you heard of Neutral Milk Hotel? I love them. Okay. So they're part of a collective called Elephant Six. It's, uh, I think it's like apples in stereo or, um, and it's, uh, of Montreal and a couple, yeah, I like a couple, a, I like of Montreal. A couple other bands that, um, there was this sort of secretive project called Major Organ mm-hmm. that no one's really ever fessed up to who it is, but it's obvious that, you know, some of those dudes have, you know, a heavy hand in the making of that record. But the idea was it was like a Elephant Six collective collaborative record and we actually were passing around files and calling them like calling it like the major anti- major organ anticon record and you know we probably ended up getting like three or four songs that were like half done passing files from artist 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 and it just never went anywhere so th- there are projects like that that definitely never see the light of day that mm-hmm. you know um you know i can't really sit on top of and Make sure that they happen. Speaking of compilations, like let's go back in the Anticon history. Is okay. it Anticon or Anticon? We say Anticon. Anticon. But people say Anticon. Yeah, I accidentally say Anticon. A lot you know, of being that I wasn't there in the inception of everything, I think, you know, the way I understand it is that everything was, you know, almost like a data concept where it's like open to interpretation mm. and, you know, it, it it's sort of up to you what to make of it. You know, what it means, what it, you know. But Were you there working with them already when, like, Music for the Advancement of Hip Hop no, came out and shit like that? No, no, Do you remember, like, the hip hop message boards? Fuck, oh, man. They either loved it or they hated it. Well, I was never, like, a huge message board kid until I met the... I still was never a huge message board kid. I fucking hate message boards. They're breeding grounds of trolling and, you know, uninformed opinions or overly that you're, informed. Ju- that you're just like fuck off like you know y- you can talk all the talk but where's your record label at like where are your songs at like mm-hmm. you know i don't know anyway i just i personally am not a fan of message boards um and anticon did have a message board and it was definitely a breeding ground for a lot of hater i don't know people just would gang up on anticon and I think there was a point where Anticon was getting a lot of flack being called racist that kind of... Yeah, I remember that term being thrown around when the advancement or music yeah, for the yeah. advancement of hip-hop I mean, came honestly, out. I, I mean, you know, that name is quintessential soul. It's like tongue-in-cheek, not meant to really be taken seriously, but obviously it's like a ridiculous statement when like a collective of predominantly white rappers come 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 along make a record called music for the advancement of hip-hop or the first one that was called hip-hop music for the advancement of mankind it's like it's it's obviously ridiculous but if you're not privy to the joke and if you don't appreciate the joke you know i mean the music itself is never a joke and that's something that you know we've always had a hard time with people um misconstruing uh, especially when a lot of the early press shots of the collective, you know, in Herb Magazine were fairly joke set up press shots. You know, like I don't think you can ever listen to a themselves record or an early soul record or, you know, the Buck 65 Man Overboard record that we put out. And, you know, you're not going to, it's not fucking Paul Barman. We're not nerds the way people think we're nerds. You know, they're artists that are trying to do something different, but. It's it's never been like nerdcore or whatever like you know the shit that like nerdcore is kind of like meta or, or very self aware in their snarkiness I guess or something I mean yeah Anticon the artists on the label I mean they take it serious it's not a joke and they're like true hip hop purists and 
a lot of them in terms of what they listen to, you know, the original guys at least, they're not nerds. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 that was always something that drove me nuts. But yeah, the message boards. Um, oh, I, mean, I, I didn't I, mean I, to bring up a conversation about I could, message boards. I no, meant no, more it's like, cool. Yeah, yeah. I could just always like, you know, live without them. I'm not going to pretend like I haven't looked. I haven't searched our name on message boards to see what people are saying or to, you know, see what people still think of us right. today. When you first linked up um, with the guys and you're interning, like what what was the collective goal of the community at first? You know, originally they all wanted to. I mean, the label was started as a, a as a way to facilitate the release of their own records without having to go to another label. You know, it's just do things independently. There was never any outside investment. There was never, you know, um, never any attempts to sign to majors. You know, I mean, obviously the music was like pretty unique and i don't know if the industry was ready at that time for that sort of thing i mean you see there's a lot more opportunity for really unique music now as as indies have grown and majors have kind of uh had their influence decrease a lot you know i I think there's more opportunity for that but you know the original goal i think was ultimately just to be self-sustaining and to be able to provide you know effectively like salaries for the for the core original people i mean there are a lot of ideals there that were great and there are a lot of ideals there that were a little bit um overly optimistic you know and and you know i think that comes with you know youth and growth and learning what works and you know ultimately at the end of the day what's realistic what can you accomplish so i mean i think they have predominantly been successful in their original goals, you know, at least for a lot of the artists to, you know, most of them don't have day jobs still. Um, some of them have taken on day jobs because they don't want to, I, you know, I, I'm not sure what you do as a musician, but I think, you know, there isn't, you know, for, for your day job. But I, I, I think that sometimes if you're stressing your art, if you're making a record because you have to feed yourself, if you're going on tour just because you have to feed yourself, I mean, although making the music is a business and you should take it seriously and, 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 and try and earn and feed yourself off of it, I guess if it, if it's, you know, if your means and your ends are like mixed up, mm-hmm. it can really stress you out. And, you know, for a lot of, you know, there's certain artists that we've had that, you know, maybe their tours weren't going as well as they used to, and maybe their sales weren't going as well as they used to. And, I think it's for the few that have, you know, ended up getting day jobs, like they haven't renewed excitement and freedom when it comes to their current music output that they're working on. And I, I think it's, it's, it's nice to see. Maybe they value that free time that they actually have a little more or something. Or, or it's just, you know, it's art for art's sake, as opposed to, you know, I need to make something that's going to sell some yeah, records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, I mean, obviously, like, a lot of our original artists don't also make the kind of music that is, like... Like, even though that might be their mentality, I need to put something out to, to, to make money. They're not making music that sounds like music that's made to make money. Were you guys making money at the beginning? Well, again, I came around in 2001. And How long have they been around in 2001? The first release was like the end of 98, I believe. Yeah. And, um, so, I mean, that was still pretty much the beginning. Fairly the beginning. And yeah, records were selling. Um, they were originally with a, a distribution company called TRC. It was infamous for ripping off a lot of indie hip-hop artists back in the day. 
Um, and Bailey, who originally ran the label, well, the first non-artist who ran the, the label that's worthy of speaking about, he actually worked for TRC. And he got laid off around the time that they were kind of screwing over a lot of artists. And Anticon started a distribution company called Six Months Distribution, which the goal was originally to survive for six months and shop themselves to other distribution. And eventually they landed a deal with Revolver USA, who we're still with today. So that was around uh, summer of 2002. So we've been with the same distribution company for a long time. And yeah, I mean, we, we sold a lot of records, you know, we had Sage Francis's first like real record personal journals and, um, we sold a lot of copies, you know, it was, it was very, um, reasonable then you could still sell a lot of CDs. I, I mean, bought that on CD. I mean, thank you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, piracy was just really getting going and, you know, it was a little bit harder then than it is today. And I think, you know, Anticon's um, success also is largely owes something to that initial Napster days. That's how I found out about it. Napster, um, you know, Audio Galaxy, you know, they, they were like a lot of people passing around files. And I think, uh, you know, once it got to the point where you just had to type in an album title and RAR or Zip or mm-hmm. Blogspot or something like that, that's when it like really started you know, shit started hitting the fan mm-hmm. once Tower Records closed. Um, and, you know, I mean, now there's a resurgence. Now you have vinyl shops everywhere. Things, you know, now, now sales are based on things that, you know, you, you can hold. Um, and also the newer generation now was raised to purchase MP3s. Although, you know, people still steal shit all the time. You know, I, I think we're kind of, we're, we're no longer at the valley that we were at in, you know, 2006, 2007, at least for our company. Can you kind of break down the path with the label to where you are now? Can we start going along that storyline? Yeah. I mean, essentially for the first, um, you know, seven years, I would say everything was pretty self-contained. You know, there were eight, maybe it was seven core artists. There's, you know, Yoni Wolf from Y, um, who then went by the moniker Y, the solo moniker Y, and now Y is meant to be his band. Um, Dos One, Gel, Odnostom, Alias, and Soul were the original like seven. And then there was, you know, Passage and Rest of Form Bodies were kind of like the next. None of those guys were owners of the company ever, but they were very involved. So with like personal journals, is that just a one-off distro kind of thing that you guys did with him? Well, it was, I don't know. I mean, I think there was a lot of, you know, stuff with like Buck 65, 62, Sage Francis. There's a lot of shit that I can't really speak to because I just, you know, I was not personally involved. I was a young kid, you know, I was very supportive. I, I mean, there were, you also have to remember that there was a lot of personal stuff that goes along with business. And I think in the early days of Anticon, um, when it was a little more artist run, it was not no offense to the people. Beefs <laughs> and fucking well, it's just, it's, I don't know if it's a huge beefs, but it's like, it's different when you have a dedicated business person handling all the office day to day. And there are certain things that have happened that, you know, kind of ended up like tarnishing relationships. And also being that they're all friends, you know, it's like how, how much can you work with some of your best friends? Sometimes it works great and sometimes it doesn't. As soon as money gets involved, yeah. people get weird. Yeah. So there were those sort of one-offs or things that looked like they were going to be more, but 
ended up not being more. And then, you know, around 2003, Anticon signed Dosh. And he was kind of like the first addition to our roster outside of the the core. Out of the core artists, who were the ones that were moving the most? And and if the scales were tipped towards one person more than another, did that ever cause rifts or tension? No, there was never any tension like that. I mean, ultimately accounting is handled, you know, just like any other record label. It's like, you know, a deal with the artists. And so the other artists, you know, Essentially, if someone's selling records, it's funding the label that's going to be able to push the next artist record. Mm. So, um, you know, no one was really involved. No one really knows each other's numbers. Mm. And, you know, I would say Sage Francis, like, was probably, like, our biggest seller earlier in the days. Definitely our biggest seller. Out of the eight core, was it, like, Dose or Soul doing I mean, I think, it, you know, they're, they're – I mean, it depends. Depends on like each record, you know. I think you know we sold a lot of copy of Soul's Bottle of Humans, but we might not have sold as many of his record that we put out, you know, a few years later. Right. So yeah, it really depends. Um, there are certain records we made a lot of money on, certain records we made you lose a lot of money on. I mean, it's very common for a record label. It's it's unpredictable. You know, the material has a lot to do with it. The amount of push the artist puts into it has a lot to do with it. How much touring they're doing how press receives the record it's still the same you know unpredictable equation so to continue our evolution you know we had a problem where our artists would create in cycles generally it's almost like i probably shouldn't say this but you know almost like women that hang out together and they happen to everybody kind of gets on they a roll at the their, same time. Their, their periods line up together um and yeah so there'd be periods where we'd have a lot of work on our hands and periods where we'd have kind of like nothing to do. Well, not nothing to do, but less records to push. And we only make money on records. We don't make money on tour sales. We don't, you know, we only make money on Anticon label merch. You know, we don't make money. You know, there's only so many revenue streams for a label. And I don't think a lot of fans really realize that when they're saying like, oh, I don't mind downloading for free, but I'll go to a show and pay for the artist. You know, I, I think that they ultimately only want to help the artist, and that's, you know, I get it. It's fine. But I think if without us, you know, funding things for the artists, like it's hard for the artists to get their music out there. So there was also a point where around 2006, we kind of just decided, like, we can't sit on our hands. We need to find new acts. And it was all pretty organic. It was never like artificial. We, I don't think we've ever signed anyone off of a demo. It's always been people that maybe have played shows with our artists, that are artists. You know, we curate the label as a crew. Like, there's eight of us that vote. Uh, if I want to put out a record, even though I do all the day-to-day of the business, I still have to go to everyone and say, hey, I, I really like this artist's music. This is what they have going on for us. Here's a sample. Please vote. And what if it's 4-4? Four, four? I believe the rule is you have to get three no's and it's off the table. Oh, okay. And luckily, you know, we haven't we haven't butt heads. You know, we're pretty kind to one another. And What's your official title? I just call myself a label manager. I could call myself CEO. It doesn't matter. I mean, we all collectively own the same same amount of the company. Okay. But I I handle like all the day to day, and that's mainly how we collaborate together in terms of uh, an ownership collective. Is is usually just the the curating. So in two thousand. Six is when we started, you know, we picked up a guy who goes by SJ Esau and he's from 
Brighton, I believe. And we worked with, uh, as I had alluded to, this guy Bracken, who was Chris Adams from Hood, his solo music. Um, we've always been big Hood fans. And we linked up, I think in 2007, we put out a group called Need More Shallows that was kind of like a sort of indie indie rock band. But um, we're all fans of this stuff. So, I mean, the, I think the reality is that I don't tend to listen to a lot of indie rap these days unless we put it out. So I know that you don't notice changes while you're going through them because yeah. it's like you look in a mirror every day so you don't realize if you're getting fat or if you're losing weight or whatever because you see yourself every yeah. day. But now in hindsight, do you think there was a, a time when everybody kind of went – because I, I didn't notice it myself but I was the same way where – I used to listen to fucking all rap music and it was all like golden era rap. And I was very like, mm -hmm. you know, always trying to educate myself about that. And then it slowly kind of waned. My interest waned in that. And I uh, got more into indie rock and then I got more into electronic music and I got, all, you know, and so now it's like, I kind of have a, a healthy mixture of everything. Yeah. So you say when you started with the guys, everybody was kind of these like hip hop fundamentalists. Do well, I mean, I mean, it all varies, you know, I, I, I think Yoni from why, you know, it's very obvious that you know he's he listens to other things he's a huge silver juice fan he's a huge you know bob dylan fan he, mm -hmm. you know he still listens to rap music but but when you look in hindsight was there like a collective shift where everybody kind of went oh wait we don't just need to do rap music no i don't think it was really vocalized it was kind of just like you know yoni was already branching out into rock music so it kind of really seemed like we could we could do that. And it was what we were listening to. I mean, when I started DJing at UC Berkeley's radio station, Calix, I ended up having a radio show and they have a format that's uh, like a diverse format. You're not allowed to have a, a hip hop show. You're not allowed to have an electronic music show. You're not allowed to have a folk music show. And I had to, you know, start listening to more styles of music. So I was really getting into, you know, early warp boards of Canada stuff and, um, certain folk stuff that seemed to be very prevalent in the Bay Area in the 2000s. And, you know, I think my taste, just as you said, just ended up growing. And frankly, in the mid 2000s, there wasn't anything in like indie hip hop that it run its course. It was all getting bad. It was, you know, when I moved to the Bay, like most of my favorite hip hop from that was my favorite stuff in the year 2000 when i moved to the bay in 2001 even a lot of stuff that was coming out of the bay i'm not trying to name any anything but it all started letting me down really heavy that was the time that a lot of the people that used to jock anticon jumped on to like dipset and shit like yeah, that you yeah. know what i mean that was like the original yeah you used to jock anticon now you jock I, dipset, I, yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize that the quote-unquote rap nerds in 2001 that were fucking super into Anticon are the same rap nerds now that are into trap music. Well, real shit. Yeah. It depends on what trap music you're talking about. If you're talking about Gucci, then yeah, maybe you're right. I yeah. mean, I'm, I'm, I'm into that shit. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm evidence of that, but I think, you know, o over time we kind of just wanted to try, try out some new things. And I think at first it was a shock to the system. Every review that you would read would be like, Oh, experimental left field, hip hop collective releases, you know, an indie rock record. And I remember like a lot of people were confused thinking that it was like supposed to be rap influenced indie rock or something. Yeah. You know? Or, you know, a lot of reviews will oftentimes, surprisingly, I would think that writers would know this, that like just because a group like the more shallows is coming to Anticon to release a record, 
it doesn't mean that they made a record to try and sound like anything that we're doing or that we had an influence on them. It's just that this was their next record that they made. And, and you guys liked it. And we liked it. And I mean, that, I mean, that's not fully true because Odd No Some did have some part in it. But like, you know, that type of collaboration is why we end up working together. But it's it's not the other way around. It's not like we're going to work together so we send in one of our guys to like right. make it sound a certain way. We need some more snares. Yeah. So over the years, it, it's gotten a lot easier. Um, I think, you know, success that we found with baths um, really helped. I think... We definitely had a, a lull in you know the bulk of 2006 and 2007, and a lot of that had to do with what was going on in the industry. Is that when you took over? Yeah. Um, How did it come from you interning to eventually becoming the label manager? So I was full-time assistant label manager guy um, starting in the beginning of 2006. And then sometime around, I would say, uh, April or May of 2007, Tower Records closed, and then that ended up leading into uh, a distributor that was uh, someone we we worked with um, called Caroline, basically shutting its doors or, I guess, um, reconfiguring how it worked, I guess, um, which led to a massive amount of returns. And if you're familiar in the music industry, when a distributor sells a copy to a store, whether or not that you know, CD is sold at the store, they, you know, they get the income, they pay it out to the label. We ended up getting a a ton of returns when tower closed tower basically had the right to send the records back to the distributor. And then the distributor basically, well, they don't ship them back to us, but they, well, they could, or they ask us, you know, you want to destroy them. Um, cause they might not have enough of a warehouse to house, house all the CDs coming back to them. And uh, you basically end up getting asked out on the money that you've already been paid. So we had a large sum of money that, you know, we've already been paid that they're now going to withhold that sum from the next sets of of royalty statements. And, uh, you know, we kind of, Bailey and I looked at each other and we kind of freaked out and we're like, what do we do? And luckily I just really wanted to do this and he had been doing it for a while and kind of, you know, uh, wanted to see what else he could do in life. Um, and he, he kind of opted to let me take over. Um, so I took over in, uh, 2007 around, I want to say May, June. And, um, and then things, you know, kind of, kind you of still at the, in the Bay at that point. I was mm. things, things kind of took off. I, I moved to LA again in 2008 and, um, you know, it wasn't because he left that they took off. It was, you know, it was just random circumstance that, um, luckily we got like a really good Y record and, um, that really helped kind of get more attention on us again. And I think the move to LA was really good because I think the community here is really amazing and everyone's very supportive. And there was something about being in the Bay that, um, we almost were our own community I definitely knew other people doing stuff, but it it wasn't the same as it is down here. There's something about Dub Lab and Alpha Pup and Friends of Friends and all these people kind of doing similar things, you know, that might be slightly different, but we're all a network for one another. And that really didn't exist for us, at least in San Francisco. So yeah, I I think over the years we've and 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 luckily as the core artists have sort of focused on their own careers and less on Anticon and you know there's been 
you know, there's certain people that don't necessarily work with each other anymore. And, you know, everyone's kind of doing their own thing. Like it's allowed me some freedom to just try and put my influence on it. And, you know, I have a vision for the label and I've always had a vision for the label that has been that, you know, our logo is a stamp as a brand. It's a stamp of approval that this is something that we're presenting where 10 years ago it might've meant more like this is the type of music that you're going to get. Right. I mean, I, I, maybe I'm ADD, but I, I need to be able to, I want to be able to put out anything right? as long as we're into it and have it be on our label and have it make sense. And I think that's getting a little bit easier over the years. And I mean, similarly, like, you know, what I do here is curating as well. And it's yeah. like, there's a script in your head that makes sense. And even though it might not make sense to other people mm-hmm. over time, the longer you do it, you start to go, oh yeah, yeah, this makes sense with Anticon and maybe this doesn't. And I think sometimes, you know, you have to be careful because... You know, I mean, I don't think a whole lot of our original fans are necessarily still paying attention to us and, you know, for better or for worse, you know. But there are other labels that have stepped up that are kind of doing something that, you know, maybe we used to do and, you know, they can go follow them. And I'm, you know, I'm happy that they still have, you know, someone putting out music that 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 pleases them. But, but, you know, like I, I mean, I... I, I'm personally just someone who wants to always be looking forward and, you know, I'm trying to be very respectful to our heritage and I'm trying to, you know, I continue to work with the original core artists. I mean, that's part of our, like, not only part of our agreement, but, you know, I never came into this to kind of like take something away from everyone Mm -hmm. and be like, you know, this is mine now. It's, it's more like, all right, let's, let's do everything, you know, let's, let's continue to be a service to the the original people who maybe founded the company but haven't like really had a whole lot to do with the day-to-day in 10 years you know mm-hmm. um while i can still you know but i i always have to keep innovating because you know with our roster if we keep the same cycle of releases like you know there's not a whole there's not a whole lot of reason for people to keep paying attention i mean at least i'm the kind of person that i don't need 10 albums from an artist, you know, before I start losing my interest. Yeah. Um, I usually am losing interest by the second one. (laughs) I'm very ADD about shit. Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends. And you know, certain, certain music also just sort of makes sense for a time. Exactly. And you know, there are a lot of artists that even like right now are releasing records that are follow-ups, you know, like I keep wanting to say names, but I don't want to be a dick, but like, a lot of artists that, you know, I maybe liked a few years ago and this is maybe only the, you know, the first, and I was so into it, but there was something that made me connect with that music at that time. At that, that time. maybe, and it's not to say that the music isn't good now, but it's just maybe my personal taste have moved on a little bit. And it's different now in the, in the age of the internet and the 24 second news cycle where things oh, yeah. go so much faster and something that came out two years ago that you were mm-hmm. super into all of a sudden seems a lot older than it would have in a two-year span in 1999, say. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was nothing to wait two years for a Red Man album back in the 90s because it, like, made sense. But now it's like, oh, if you're not putting out a record every few months, you're, like, kind of whatever. Well, I think that's a little bit too much. I mean, you know, I think it's gotten a little bit out of hand. Absolutely. I'm not the kind of person that needs an album every six months from an artist to keep my attention going. Um, but we're also products of the internet where we have so much music to listen to that you know you really need to make 
a splash. You know, I it's it's rare that I listen to a, a record on loop for a year. You know, when I was younger, and you only have like you know a hundred CDs or something like that. That, that you wasn't an unbelievable to. Yeah. thing to do. Was 2007 when you took over around the same time that like, was there some sort of like stink with soul where like he quit or something or like, didn't he make some big public stink? Uh, you know, soul is an interesting dude. Um, to be careful with my wording, like, yeah, I don't know. He, and I'm not trying to stir up beef no, and shit because, no, like, no, I'm no. not, I'm not personally inv- involved in it. So if you don't want to go there, we don't have no, to. No, no. I mean, I don't have a problem talking about it. I've, I've, you know, I talked to LA Weekly about it when it went down. But basically, you know, I think as a perfect example, maybe like my ideology and his ideology for my current I- ideology and the ideology that he started the company with maybe didn't align. Mm. And I think there are certain, just like any relationship, like any, you know, that you might have with a loved one or something like that. You have to know when stuff doesn't work anymore. Mm. And, uh, I think we both kind of came to that decision. Um, you know, I think it was publicized as, you know, purely his decision, but you know, and I didn't push him out. But I think we both kind of like saw the writing on the wall and thought maybe he would do better either elsewhere or on his own or – And now with that being said, you do have the group of the eight core artists. Was that like another – you know, had to have a, a secret meeting? And yeah, so- yeah. Actually, that was probably the last thing that we really all got involved with um, that was like how are we going to go forward and what does this mean for the company? And in the end, it, it really wasn't – you know, because was it something at that point where it could have been like him or you? Could it have been like, oh, well, the eight vote that you're not an original artist, so you have to be gone? Could that have been a possibility? I mean, it could have been. Yeah, and I was okay with that. Yeah, you know, it was his company. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I wasn't an owner at that point. Even, oh, okay. though, even though I had moved the company to LA, I was running the business. The former label manager was uh, involved with, you know some of our accounting and stuff. But other than that, I, I ran everything. I was not an owner. So yeah, I mean, they could have, you know, they could have tried to keep him. They could have gotten rid of me. They could, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it, it, w- it wouldn't have really made sense, you know, like soul had gotten so distant from, from the original, from group the, of- well, the collective or the label itself, you know, he had moved to Spain for a while. He was living in Arizona. He's living in Colorado now. And, you know, I really wish him the best of luck and I'm, you know, I'm happy to see him still doing his thing. But I think, you know, it, it, it kind of made, it was kind of time, you know, and it's, it was the hardest thing for me that was weird is like, this was his baby. He started the company, but it kind of grew into something that it, 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 it it's hard to apply the ideals of a late nineties hip hop label to a company 10 years later that has evolved into something else and is no longer run by the people that ran it. And that is putting out music that is no longer, you know, the music that we used to put out. And, you know, we just kind of needed to move our separate ways. And what year was that? I want to say that was 2009. Did it feel like a weight off your shoulders? Yeah, totally. It did. Totally. And at that point, did you feel like you had a little more freedom? I don't think freedom was ever really an issue with him personally. I think it was just like, it was just a toxic working relationship. Yeah. And I'm sure it was hard for him to work with me, 
because he might have felt unappreciated and it was the same way, you know, the other way around. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm trying to be careful about what I say because I, you know, I do know it's, it's a, it's a, it's a sensitive subject I, I and, feel you. and, and I, I, you know, I never wished him any ill will and I never really, you know, wanted to like, I wish him the best in a separate, you know. Yeah, totally. Like, and and I, that's never what I want this, yeah. this podcast to turn yeah, into yeah. is like a fucking tell all about personal issues. So I don't – we can fucking no, move but past no, that. I get it though because, you know, it's a significant part of our history that, you know, I think a lot of fans have like never really – you know, the old fans never really understood it and then – And the new fans might not have cared. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean – it was definitely like a heavy decision for us all to go on, but it was it was another, you know, milestone for us as a company that like okay we can work through this sort of thing, and also just a call to like it really being something different. Well, and it's just funny because coincidentally around '09 is when I started to notice like oh Anticon is on some different shit now, yeah. and it seems like like you mentioned when the Bath's record came out. That was like, oh shit! Like Anticon is like back yeah. on some some shit that's like gonna change <laughs> change things. You know what I mean? Like I thought at the time that that came out, it was the best record of the beat scene personally to me. Yeah. I loved it, and I wasn't a huge fan of a lot of beat scene shit. Yeah. I was there, you know, as an onlooker, but I thought a lot of it was kind of um, incestual almost, and yeah. like too influenced by its own scene. And I thought his was like this kind of cool balance of like indie rock and chill wave and well, and he beat was scene he stuff. was never really part of the beat scene. Yeah, you know, I mean. He he was he was embraced by it, which I think was great, but uh, you know ultimately, you know Will had been sending me sort of you know demos or records essentially that he had been making under the name Postfeeda since I think he was sixteen. He was you know being that he went to Hamilton, he was friends with my good friend's younger siblings, so there's always a connection there, and we both played that Destroy LA show. Um, him opening, I think, and me closing the the big show with Flying Lotus and No Such Thing and Gaslamp Killer and Daedalus and Jogger and Tokimonster. And I think it was kind of like he was really influenced by that. And, he, you know, he – I don't think he was influenced and wanted to be part of the beat scene, so to speak. But he realized that he didn't need a band and that there was, you know – a different approach that he could be taking for his music. And I think the good thing is that he's never been a DJ. You know, it's a little frustrating because sometimes it would be really nice if we could just be like, oh, he's going to do a DJ set. But if you know Will and his personality, he's he's not he's not a beat scene kid. He's not a kid hanging out at low-end theory. He's, he, you know, he's a songwriter. He's a, he's a, he's a quirky dude, you know. Yeah. He's a gay kid from Chatsworth who's you know, really interested in comic books and, you know, he tweets a shit ton. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, that's, you know, that's another weird thing, you know, to, to pair up his music, which is very serious. And then you like look at his Twitter or his Vine or his Instagram. And very it's, jokey. It's very, you know, immature. Yeah. For, for a, he's a mature person, but you know, his sense of humor can be very immature at times and i i that's i don't mean that in a condescending no, but, way and it's funny because a lot of um 
I've always found that funny. Like fans can get attached to an artist's music and have a certain perspective on what they think they would be like, and then be so surprised by the fact that like, oh wait, I like fart jokes. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's impossible for fans to grasp that like, oh wait, you're not serious all the time. Mm-hmm. Like maybe that's just your outlet is serious, you know? Yeah. Or you know, does it then make people think that the music is like? an act as well or something mm, like that yeah, yeah. or not an act as well but or is that it it's it's hard to pair the two sides i don't know i mean i guess that's just the nature which of is the real age. person you know in 2013 there's a little too much act i mean you would have never known you know 10 years ago if your favorite musicians were into fart jokes mm-hmm. <laughs> now, now you will right um Anyway, but yeah, so baths worked out for us and we, you know, we, prior to that, we had worked with some other artists that, you know, were doing well for us, um, maybe on a slightly smaller scale, but like tobacco who basically is black moth, super rainbow, you know, black moth was supposed to sign with us and then they got taken on the tour with uh, flaming lips and then every label under the sun wanted to sign them. And so while he was shopping deals, while Tom was shopping deals, for that, he basically said, hey, I, ha- I want to start this other project. And it kind of was way more up my alley in the end anyway. So it, it worked out. And then we we signed this guy, Sun Lux, from New York, who did really well. And we were already working with Serengeti. And Wait, so, what's Sun Lux? Sun Lux is this guy, Ryan Lott. Um, I'll have to send you some. Yeah. Um, he, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he was, he's like a composer. He's really well classically trained guy, um, who was working at a production house, uh, in New York, uh, doing music for commercials and scoring things. Uh, like, uh, he does a lot of music for, um, modern dance because his wife is uh, a dancer mm. and, uh, he, did do some work on the the looper score oh yeah that was like really interesting like found sound yeah he helped him he helped the the main uh score oh cool uh guy put together all the sounds and create virtual instruments from the sounds and um yeah i'm sure he's working on a lot more stuff like that that i can't talk about yeah um and you guys were working with getty like you just mentioned yeah is a personal fave of mine i I really enjoy that guy's work we had signed a serengeti and polyphonic originally um as a duo we we got past um one of their cds and we were really into it and we asked them to do another one they did that and they kind of broke up on tour Mm. and that sucked but it's worked out since we've continued to work with serengeti and not that I chose sides by any means. Um, I actually would work with Polyphonic if the right material came our way as well. I really liked him. He was a really nice guy. It, it kind of sucked because you see like two nice guys like get in a fight on tour and you don't really know. I mean, you believe both of them and you never really know like, what happened. Yeah, you yeah. know, and you don't want to pick sides. Um, but you know, so my, my idea was that, you know, we could just continue to work with both of them and Serengeti's just been like incredibly more prolific. Yeah. That guy doesn't stop. It's crazy. No, he doesn't. I was trying to explain to one of my friends, Serengeti's output and how he can create these whole worlds with a fake character. And I was like explaining the Kenny Dennis character to him. And then I realized like, 
I knew so many like facts about this dude, Kenny Dennis, that it like felt like a real person. Yeah. And I'm like, that's crazy because it must be even fucking realer in his world. Oh, it's crazy. If, if you talk to Getty about Kenny and each time you talk to him, it's like even more and more involved. And right now he's written this pilot that's supposed to be, um, you know, filmed soon. And it's a whole world. It's it's ridiculously in depth, and I don't know if you've listened to his uh, his Friday night records with uh, Frohawk. Uh, they're these concept records that you know we have we didn't put them out, but it's actually where the Grim Teaches came from. So the Grim Teaches was originally on the second Friday night record, which is Saturday night. It, each record is a story of a night, you know, chaotic night, and they're doing Sunday night coming up, but on the just to show you how in-depth he is, on the Saturday Night Record, there's a point where they get in the car and they turn on the radio and there's this classic rap on. And the, the song was, that they had recorded, you know, they recorded that song. It was The Grim Teaches. And they were like, oh, we should do a whole record like that. Mm-hmm. And then The Grim Teaches is then tied to Kenny Dennis. It's Kenny because Dennis Kenny was years ago. But he was too old to be part of the scene and Shaq made fun of his mustache or something like that. I don't know if he was too old to be a part of the scene. I, I, I forget that part yeah. uh, at, at the time. But yeah, Shaq made fun of his mustache, so he made the diss song. It's just crazy. Shazam and, yeah. you know. No, so anyway, shout to Serengeti. That's some of my favorite uh, recent Anticon output as well. What else? Who else are you guys working with now? Well, we recently signed Deej from We Did It. Um, we kind of just reissued a... Um, uh, self-release band camp EP called Tide Songs. Uh, we just did it on cassette um, just to kind of put it out there. We have a new EP from him coming in July. What's Deej all about? I always see you guys via social media hanging out together, but I don't really... I'm not, I'm not that familiar with it's his my music. Uh, he's part of We Did It. Like, I mean, the closest thing that I would be able to say he sounds like is some, somewhat like Shlomo, but mm. little. Um, it's definitely different. I mean... He's kind of in the vein of that guy Evenings as well that Friends of Friends is working with. But he has his own sound. He he calls his music like EDM emotional dance music. Mm. And um, I'm not the best at necessarily describing someone's particular sound. But um, he makes fairly instrumental music. He does do singing. Um, some of his vocals are a little more buried than on top of the music. And he puts on a really good live show. And I think that's something that's really important for someone making electronic music with, you know, an MPD and a laptop. You know, a lot of the time he'll bring out a, a keyboard and a guitar and he does vocals. And, mm. But it's it's not like pop vocals like baths where that's the, the focal point. It's It's delayed out. I have a question for you. Since there have been a lot of moments in the podcast where you admittedly say, like, I want to watch my words right now, et cetera, et cetera. Is that something that you have to be well-trained in because you're dealing with artists so often and artists can be emotional? And as a side note to that question, do you think that you're a little more logical than emotional that you have to be when dealing with the artists? It depends, man. There's a full range. I Mm. mean, you know, behind closed doors, like, there might be some very uh emotional discussions um but i think in a in a public uh pr front like you have to be careful what you say all the time because you don't want to offend anyone you don't want to say the wrong thing you don't want to talk shit you want to be respectful and as professional as possible and 
you know, I, I think for the most part, like every working relationship I have, I'm pretty like comfortable with and proud of, but you know, there, there are some things that are also just not, you know, they don't need to be privy. Like every company that I know in LA has their own situations. Oh, absolutely. I guess what I'm asking more or less is like, are there artists that you work with where you have to like bite your tongue perhaps because you know, they're sensitive motherfuckers. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. I mean, definitely. I mean, you got to pick your battles and you know, there are times when my opinion is more welcome than others. And there are times when it's more necessary for me to express my opinion I'm not big into like creative control as a label manager, but I am, you know, over the years in various degrees, uh, varying degrees, uh, depending on the artist, depending on the project, depending on the level of trust over the, you know, maybe the trust wasn't there six years ago, but now, now it is like, I'm, I can be very involved with, you know, feedback and opinions and from a general sense or a very specific sense about someone's record or their performance or, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, I think over the years you learn which artists are asking for that and which artists don't want to hear that. Yeah. Don't want to hear it. And, you know, and how much certain ones need to hear it and how much certain, you know, certain artists are just fine on their own. Mm -hmm. Uh, what is your general day to day? Like what are the duties that a label manager handles? Well, basically I'm, well, a lot of our artists don't have management, so I kind of can fill in some of those roles as well. But, um, the easiest way to explain what I do is sort of project coordination. Each record is a project. Each artist works with me on, again, on varying degrees of wanting my input as the, you know, during their process. Um, some of them will just turn in a finished record. Some will turn in 20 songs and they want them whittled down. Some of them, I don't know, whatever. What I do is I work with the artists to kind of make sure that they get their album together, dealing with mixing engineers, mastering engineers, PR people, manufacturers for vinyl, CD, cassette, dealing with distributors around the world, dealing with radio PR people. I I basically, dealing with graphic designers to make the product um, look as good as possible. And each artist, each project requires a completely different set of demands. So I go into an office downtown LA, uh, Bryant Low Limit uh, from Laser Sword works with me and we have some interns and, you know, we deal with stuff from day to day, whether it's, it's kind of just passing around a lot of information. It's dealing with our website. It's dealing with accounting. It's dealing with a lot of probably just emails flying in. And yeah. Out a lot of day. emails, like yeah. trying to get things going. And, you know, I will say that you know, the biggest help is that we have um, friends of friends as our uh, – we have them on retainer for our publicity and they do a great job and they're very involved with the planning of things and that's a big help for me. Are you guys um, constantly like rotating through interns? We try to do like a three-month thing, you know, try to give them a glimpse of what it's like at a day-to-day label. Um, there's certain tasks that we can give them that are really creative and certain tasks that are – like mailing CDs and even if they're doing that type of work I try to explain what I'm doing and what's happening with our company and I try to give them a good exposure to what our business is it's interesting because sometimes we'll have interns you know one of our last interns is now working at Alpha Pup before that he had interned at Alpha Pup and you know interned at our, our office in between and you know 
I always think it's interesting, like the idea of someone going to like a, a very digital company and seeing what they're about and then coming to us and seeing what we're about. And like, mm-hmm. we're a very DIY company, mm-hmm. small staff, mm-hmm. um, but still very invested in physical product and direct sales and trying to get our merch game up. And yeah, my day to day is basically sitting in front of a computer and staring at a computer all day, which is, I feel like most of the world's day to day. Yeah. Well, I want to like, just thank you for coming in because I think it's cool, um, to have a perspective of somebody who gets to work in the music industry, who didn't choose directly to be like, a musician, even though I know mm. you DJ as well, mm. soda pop, right? Yeah. Don't call him DJ soda pop. He'll punch <laughs> you in the throat. No, but tell us some about, about your weeklies real quick and stuff like uh, that that I, you do. I have a monthly at the Crosby third Friday of the month, uh, called medium rare. Uh, low limit has been my like uh, DJ partner of late. Um, and we do that rap night. We've had, uh, I don't know. We've had some really cool guests that you wouldn't expect to do like rap sets like Daedalus like murdered it, you know, like, nice. but with like contemporary rap and no such thing and take and, you know, some local people that, you know, I mean, the money's not like huge. We're not like flying anyone in and, you know, but it, it's, it's fun. And we're starting a new electronic night. Um, it's probably going to be a monthly, but the first one is May 16th, Thursday, probably not eventually going to keep doing it on Thursdays at the complex in Glendale, which is a really nice 150 cap, um, Function One Sound System Room. It's really clean, really, really yeah, nice. Yeah, what's place. up with that place? I, like, will they let anybody throw a show there if you come with a good deal or what? Um, I got in contact with them through some mutual friends that are doing events there. Um, and they recently opened their first night was Andy Stott and Holly Herndon, uh, really awesome electronic acts. And as soon as I walked in, I was like, ah, we got to do something here. This place is so cool. And um, so we are doing something there, and we're bringing out Morris. You familiar with Morris? Mm-mm. You'd like his music. He's kind of like a beat dude. He has a thing called Team Bear Club. He's from Lawrence, Kansas. We're flying him out. He's on Night Slugs, and we're Deej and Jasner from Friends of Friends, and me and Bryant are DJing, me and The Limit. And then, uh, I don't know, talking about restarting Calling All Kids maybe for a little summer run with Matthew David. Oh, cool. Uh, That was our, like, Friday night weekly in Silver Lake a couple years ago. And we'll see if that materializes. Um, I'd love to do it again. I mean, I think we – I think it's cool because I can connect with different people and throw different nights that, like, you know, maybe this will be a rap night. Maybe this is electronic. Maybe this is, like, a weird, you know, outsider music night. Right. Uh, I DJ on Dub Lab. I have a monthly show with them. Um, time slot just changed, so I don't know it off the top of my head. But if you go to dublab.com. You can always see you in the boiler room with uh, a smile on your face. <laughs> and a beer in my hand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, one more thing before you go. There are two um, times that you've been brought up on my podcast before. One- I, 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 wait, wait, wait. Yeah. I got to plug one thing first. Though. Oh, okay. Go ahead. You gotta listen to my my dude's young fathers. Oh, have I, have I, have I played you their stuff? No, yeah, they're like the Irish dudes, right? Scottish, Scottish. I was close. I, I actually <laughs> I went and checked out some of their stuff because of you, and I thought yeah. it was very fucking cool, okay. very interesting. But yeah, well, I'm gonna bootleg it when you guys put it out, so don't worry. <laughs> right. I'm gonna, I'll download it. But no, uh, you uh, even mentioned twice. Uh, you were mentioned on uh, episode one with Bats, and you told me uh, in person that he messed up the story of how well, you guys met. Well, I just met. felt bad because you know he had been sending me music for a long time, and then he had totally cut out. My man, Josh Fisher, Joshua Fisher, who was his manager, who was one of my best friends. I mean, he still is one of my best friends. I just don't see him very much ever since, like, 
they don't work together anymore. I just felt, you know, you got to give credit where credit is due. And he definitely was a integral part of uh, Baths and Anticon coming together. So shout out to Josh Fisher then. Yeah. And then also on episode five, I actually, uh, we put it out there and then I uh, apologized later going, hey man, you get mentioned in this episode with Milo, but I hope that you're not offended. I think you actually came off like uh, pretty G'd up. No, no, I contacted you because I found it on Yahoo Answers. Oh yeah, it became a Yahoo Answers. It was on Yahoo Answers. Like, what do you think about Anticon turning down Milo? Dissing him or some shit. And the reality is I, I didn't really diss him. I think, you know, the way he told the story was pretty straight up like, pretty accurate he's a nice dude like but you know we weren't feeling him and you know baths particularly hates when people take his beats like other people have done it charlie xcx did that and like put on a mixtape and said produced by bat put an unreleased song put produced by bass and we found it on pitchfork you know like, oh, wow. giving it away a free download it's like wow you gotta at least get in touch with the label or the artist and get permission you know, I get it. Like, I get why rappers do it. I get, you know, but it it also depends on how it's being pushed, you know. And uh, I think he stepped over the line when he called it Milo Takes Bass and it had all bass beats. You know, it's, it was... Anyway, yeah. I, w- I wish him nothing but the best of success. Yeah, um, yeah. And I just I, wanted a chance for you to, like, you know, I thought, defend I thought, yourself. But I thought, it was not, I thought he did a really good job in explaining the story, and, you know. I'm actually really stoked to ha- have had you in. You're a good dude. been seeing you around the city for years now, and so it was good to get a conversation in cool. with you. And I, I've always thought that it's uh, – I always think that it's awesome – when somebody gets to um, follow their passion for music without necessarily chasing the pipe dream that is being a musician. And so for all of you out there that tune in every week that want to be fucking producers or rappers or in a band or whatever, like just know that you can also do your thing and make a living being a curator and being a businessman and still love the music. You know what I'm saying? Stay out of it. There's enough competition. Already. Yeah, exactly. But, but, re- <laughs> but, but yeah, re- it is real- possible. Realistically stay in school, motherfucker. <laughs> it is but um, yeah, so, anyhow i appreciate it man plug yourself where's your twitter oh uh i am twitter.com i am soda pop Inst- at i am soda pop one word instagram twitter facebook it's pretty much all out there for sure what's uh does anticon have like a youtube channel we do it's youtube.com slash anticon but i actually prefer the uh vimeo channel for the higher quality videos they're not higher quality. They're both. They're all 1080. I have, no, I have a beef with this. No, no. The problem is that when you go to a YouTube video, it doesn't automatically play 1080. Well, oftentimes it generally I'm, plays like what is it? It starts at three three sixty. Three sixty, and then you have to go up to 1080. But yeah, on, it's bullshit though. On Vimeo, it's the same thing. You have no. to turn the HD on. Yeah, but there's but their standard quality is higher than 360. Yeah. yeah. So that's 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 my issue. But YouTube is a social media network. I get it. And YouTube is the second biggest search engine behind google so you you guys got a fucking youtube I, Trust we, me. we do youtube we do youtube we do vimeo but when i embed i always embed vimeo because <laughs> to me why are you gonna put all this effort and money into a good looking video and then post it in like shitty quality i feel you but you know me i'm a, I'm a numbers guy i like numbers i like numbers well, i like to be able to see them there's a reason why we're uh we're where we're at, you know, because yeah. I'm, I'm I'm stubborn like that. Like yeah, quality. Sure. Well, hey, man, 
Thank you for coming in. I appreciate it. Be sure to check out my man, Ben Shim, on the boards at I Am Database. Follow me on Twitter at It's Intuition. Follow us on Twitter at That's Kinda Neat. I realize that I always forget to plug the website, so hit up kindaneat.net. It has a fucking jingle to it, kindaneat.net. It just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> so check out kindaneat.net. That's the content portal where you can find all the podcast streaming and uh, the videos that we put out. And um, yeah, follow my man, Sean Caplow. Coplo. Cop- oh, it's Coplo? I've yeah. always been saying Caplo. I know you've always been saying that shit. Damn. <laughs> Isn't it a K-A-P-L-O? It's K-O. It's K-O? Yeah, Coplo. I would have spelled it wrong when we put the motherfucking... <laughs> it's in my phone as Caplo. What yeah. an asshole. <laughs> hey, that rhymes. Uh, anyhow, all right, man. That was that was um, my friend Sean Coplo, and this is Intuition signing off, and that was kind of neat. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.